Father, we thank you again tonight for the salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful that you have created the universe. You work all things after the counsel of your will. And you've worked together for our great, so great salvation we enjoy through Jesus Christ. We thank you now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst who illuminates and teaches the word that he originally inscripturated into history. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're going to begin the first of three, I hope, no more than three. Um, it might drift into four uh, Thursday nights worth of what we call eschatology. And we do this because we're coming up on the Gospels. And you can't understand the Gospels without understanding eschatology. So, first of all, every doctrinal category has a name. And this one is from the uh, word which means last, knowledge of last things. So that's the subject content, and that's what we're going to be working through in this appendix. Um, we have enough material from our study of the Old Testament to put together some basic uh, viewpoints on eschatology. And so we want to do that. We want to apply some of what we've learned in the Old Testament and realize that an eschatology um, is implicit in the Christian faith. And in fact, everyone has an eschatology. This is not strange. This is not something that is just Christians think of when they have nothing else to do. Eschatology is, uh, is just basically God's plan for history. And all of us have, de facto, a, a an our idea of where history is going. It may be that history is going nowhere. Henry Ford was quoted as once saying that history is a sequence of one damn thing after another. And that was his eschatology. So... Um, at least he was honest. I guess that's the average eschatology of most people in the street. So, so, so the thing I want to put away right from the front is that this is not something strange, new, different. Uh, it's not something that should be foreign to us because we operate every day with a view of what is coming. We may worry about it. We may fret about it. We may be glad about it. We may hope about it, but everyone has a view of the future. It may not be developed. You may not have sat down and thought it through, but it's always there. In fact, it can be argued that eschatology is always involved when you make a moral judgment. Because if you say that something ought to be or ought not to be, you're making an ethical judgment. Now, you have a motive usually involved in that. Um, when you decide this is right or this is wrong, what is the motive to do what is right? Well, that if you ask that question, you get pushed back to consequences. That if I take path A, there are certain consequences. If I take path B, there are certain consequences. So we're talking about future. And so we want to go back to something we uh, started with back in Genesis. Because one of the things that it, the Bible shows its power as the Word of God 
in that it gives a reason for a valid eschatology. Now, apart from the Bible, nobody has a valid eschatology. Now, let me show you this. Work it through, because this is one of those little truths that makes us appreciate, or ought to, the Word of God. When Daily, we're using either logic or experience. We put this up here year, about two or three years ago when we started Genesis. This is an example of how a Christian and a non-Christian approach the issue of logic and why every person is relying basically upon the fact that they know in the bottom of their heart that they are a creature of God. They know in the bottom of their heart that God created history, and they know in the bottom of their heart that logic works. Now, all of those, all of those assumptions make sense only if the Bible is correct. So, let's look at this, this little statement. It's just a math equation, linear equation, and algebra is nothing more than a, a shorthand way of, of uh, expressing uh, something you could put in the English language. You don't have to have an equation. No equations were written before, the, I think, the 11th century. So when you see an equation, just remember that prior to 1000 AD, they didn't have equations. Well, they had computations. Well, how did they do? They had rules, they had recipe books on how to solve the problem. And then somebody thought of shorthand. So when you see an equation, don't worry about it. It's, it's just a shorthand way of expressing something. It can be perfectly expressed in, in, lang in English language. It doesn't have to have a symbol to it. <clears throat> but why I did this is because this is an elementary algebraic equation. We all learn this somewhere in high school, 7th grade, 8th grade, somewhere in there. And yet no one ever points out something vitally missing from the presentation of that. And that is, in order to make that thing work, you have to have something that's always constant. That's that A and B. If, you, if nothing is constant, you never can write a rule that handles it. So there's always got to be a constant. Now, this is no small thing. There's always got to be a constant behind every, what we call, predication or every sentence. If, the, if everything was changing all the time, then you couldn't talk. You couldn't think. So the very fact that we all talk and think proves that in our everyday experience, we really do, deep down in our heart, believe in constants. Okay? Operationally, every day. Very few people, only one or two in a hundred, think of the implication of what that means. Why do I believe in constants? Why do I really believe that something remains the same? Now, we related this back uh, in Genesis to an attribute of God. Remember we went through the attributes of God. God is sovereign. God is righteous. God is holy. God is love. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He's immutable. He's eternal and so forth and so on. Remember all that? Attributes of God. Now what attribute of, you, of God do you think supports this? The immutability of God and his omnipotence. That he is always the same. He is the constant. All these other things that we call constants are derivatives. They're derivatives of him and his character. Now, if you don't believe in the God of the scriptures, then you can be successfully challenged as to why you bother and talk, think, 
or add and subtract. Because all of it is just wasted energy of the brain, unless it's doing something. And it can't be doing anything unless there's some constants involved. Now, the other thing that's always involved in this is rules of logic. That the rules of logic hold from moment to moment. They don't go away. They're required for thinking. And everybody uses these. You don't have to be a mathematician or a historian or a philosophy professor. We all think and we think logically. Some more than others. But we always have at least some principles of logic. Now the question then is, why do these work? If there is no God, and if the universe is evolving, and if this stuff is occurring in our brains, then it probably is no more than a the result of biochemical actions going on in the, inside our heads. But as a matter of fact, we all walk through life every day, from dawn to dusk, utilizing logic in a way that betrays the fact that deep down, we after all do admit that logic is useful and we use it all the time. Now, thinking back of the attributes of God again, sovereign, righteous, holy, love, eternal, sovereign, immutable, omnipotent, omnipresent, and so forth. What is the attribute of God that supports logic? Who thinks and who thinks perfectly? And what do we call that? His omniscience. So out of the omniscience of God, we support human logic. And out of the immutability of God, we support these constants. In other words, every sentence and everything we do is a derivative of God our Creator. And we do not have to be embarrassed as Christians. The unbeliever is in, has a problem. He ought to be embarrassed. Because he uses these tools every day and can't give a foundation for it. No foundation, no reason, no rhyme, no cause behind all these things. There's no support for this. <coughs> so that's logic. <coughs> and we say it's supported by God. <coughs> now... We've shown this diagram a number of times. We're moving to eschatology, and I'm going to show you why we want to think of these two things before we get to eschatology. This is experience. We all have some degrees of experience. And the experience that we all have is limited. When we have all the different things added up that we've experienced, some every little thing that's ever happened to us, and we'll get some number, and there's always the next experience. And here's the question. And philosophers have tried and struggled with this one. How do we know that the n plus one experience won't invalidate everything that went before it? How do we know that? In advance, how do we know that? Because we yet haven't experienced it. So if we haven't experienced the n plus one experience, and how do we know that what we have already experienced is valid and is going to last? And this is, if, you see, we're not grounded on the character of God as sovereign, omniscient, planner of history, this little formula up here renders all human knowledge uncertain. Apart from the scriptures, we would be skeptics, and very confused in our thinking. 
because there's no guarantees out there in the unknown. We live in a mystery. Always sitting here waiting for the next thing to happen. Not a clue. Not a basis for it. No basis for our logic. No basis for the future. And so when we come to experience, we're always dealing with this unknown. All right, let's tie this together. We have constants, we have rules of knowledge, logic, and we have experience. Now, eschatology says that there's a logical plan to history, that there are constants involved in history, and that history, the experience, we call it future experience, is already crafted and shaped in the plan of God. That's eschatology. And apart from Scripture, and apart from God, there's no basis for saying this. And as we go through these, these views on the millennium, I'm going to point out to you historic consequences. This is, this is not a peripheral discussion that has no practical applications. You're going to see that there have been vast historical movements throughout history involving millions of people who have died because of wrong eschatologies. Communism was one of them. We're going to learn how communism borrowed its eschatology from the Bible. The atheist movement, in order to hold to a progressive view of history, borrowed it from the Bible, and they borrowed it from a particular book in the Bible. And it's interesting that Marxists today would be utterly embarrassed and ashamed to admit where their idea of progress came from. Utterly embarrassed and ashamed to have to admit that it came from nowhere else than the Bible. Now, why is that? Because the Bible alone has the concept, has the truth that history is going somewhere that future experience has already got a shape to it. That is not a possible consequence if you do not accept the Scriptures. Scripture is not your authority. You have no authority for the future. All you have is just personal arrogance in deciding because you decided it's going to be that way, the future is going to be somewhat. That's all you got. It's arrogance for the Word of God. So, we want to look now as we come down to how eschatology developed. And I did this in fine print because I'm trying to compress it down so that I apologize for those of you who have bifocals like me and you're wondering which lens works best in this. Um, we're just trying to start by giving you a little history and background. So one other thing we want to, want to define before we uh, get in here, I just noticed I forgot to emphasize. We talked about eschatology. We talked about the fact that it's built on God's character. It's built on a constancy of logical rules, constants and, and experience. One other thing, by way of vocabulary, so we can talk about this, is you'll see two words used here a lot. One is history, and the other is eternity. Now, what we mean by eternity here is not God's attribute. What this word here, eternity, means, it means future, the, the future experience with God, uh, the future eternal history, you might say. Okay? Now, these are two categories. So, let's look at these two categories. 
and get them firm in our minds so we can start a vocabulary of thinking this through. History is a period of time, and we've, we've seen this, and we've just never used the word before in connection with this diagram. Now let's go back to our old familiar diagram here, and let's look at the Christian position. The Christian position has creation as the starting point. Before creation, you have God eternally existing. So there's no eternal history except there's his own personal eternality. History begins there and runs on a line to judgment. And then, once we reach this point in judgment, we say good and evil are separated. The book of Revelation ends with a total division. And it, it's locked up. So here is a characteristic that sets apart eternity, future, and history as we live it. In this interim, what do we say? Good and evil coexist. It's possible to cross from one to the other. This is the time for repentance. This is the time for sin. Go toward evil, sin. Go toward God, good, it's repentance. So it's a time, history is that time when there's repentance can be possible. And sin, falling into sin is possible. When we come out to eternity, however, the evil remains evil and the good remains good and there is no crossover. There is no repentance. Nobody falls. There's perfect. Angels uh, don't worry about salvation. Nor do the eternally redeemed. Salvation is past tense. It's gone. The only time we discuss salvation is in this interim period between creation and the final end. After that, salvation is irrelevant. So that also tells us something else. It tells us that as far as God's plan for us is something greater than salvation plan. Salvation is not the end point. If it were, then there'd be no sense of living forever and ever. If salvation stops at a point in time, then it no longer is an issue. If salvation is no longer an issue, what then has become the issue? And of course, the answer is the glory of God. And that's why the glory of God is a higher goal than, than salvation itself. And why any plan of salvation must be subordinate to the glory of God because that's ultimately what occupies the creation here. So, if we define this as history, and we define this as eternity, then history is a period of repentance and sin, and eternity is a time when it's frozen and locked in place. So that's a pretty powerful difference between history and eternity. Let's bring out a few other things. We call this period of time of history the time of mortality. That is, it's the era of mortality. What does that mean? It means we can die. Now, in Adam and Eve's case, they could die if they fell. So they were vulnerable to death. Christ in his humanity, and I'm, we're gonna see, you can see now why we're setting this up because we're gonna start talking about Christ and what he could do and what he couldn't do. Jesus Christ, as true humanity, could also die. That was possible because he lived inside history. 
that's all tied in with this incarnation. What a magnificent, miraculous thing it was for the God of eternity to come into history and become vulnerable to death as any other creature in history would be. Creature being his created, his, his created body in Christ. Now, on this side of the thing, once we get over into eternity, now we call that the era of immortality. I am immortality. So those are two words, mortality and immortality. Those two words become very important when we go to sort through the pieces here and all this. Here we have repentance, evil, and change. Here we have fixed categories without that kind of change. Mortality and immortality. Okay, now let's go to page one on the handout. And we want to look uh, at that first chart. This is the chart, um, figure one, the pre-New Testament controversy of kingdom and judgment. Now here's the problem that arose. You can see it developing in the Old Testament, and it occurred long before Jesus walked the face of this earth. The issue in the Old Testament, we, let's go back, and, and we said this all develops out of what we've studied. So let's go back to the call of Abraham and the origination of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And we call that the disruptive kingdom because the world had fallen and God's intrusion into history, into fallen history, from the standpoint of history, is a disruption. It's not a disruption as far as he's concerned. The history is a disruption. But reversing it, that's why we use that vocabulary. Okay, now, in this situation, we talk about the kingdom. And that's a theme in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God. And Abraham is told that kings shall come out from him and they shall rule, they shall have dominion. In the Exodus, we have God starting his theocracy or the theocratic kingdom. And what was the constitution of the theocratic kingdom? The Old Testament Torah. Okay? Now watch it here because this is a, is a point that you're going to see again and again for the next two or three Thursday nights. Where's the church in all this? That's the big question. Church is not visible at all in any of this business about the kingdom. This is all Israel. Church has nothing to do with this in the Old Testament because the church doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It's Israel and Israel alone that's centered into this. It's Jewish. It's the Jewish versus the Gentile issue. Forget all the New Testament. The New Testament hasn't happened yet. So you have this kingdom. And we know as we go through this kingdom, remember that it was blessings and cursing upon Israel, and we said that one of the paradoxes that we're left with toward the end of the Old Testament is this paradox. How can a holy God, the king of Israel, bring sinful people into a kingdom that has no end. How can they ever have security, a sinful people, in God's kingdom? 
And just to emphasize the point, what did God do to people who sinned here? And after the reign of David, well, this year, or last year, we, we saw that um, he disciplined. And what was the point in all the discipline? The point in all the discipline was that he's a holy king and he will not tolerate sin in his kingdom. He rules his kingdom with an iron hand. Why is that? Because he's a holy God. <clears throat> so then he, he, the kingdoms came into decline, the kingdom was divided, Israel, and went into exile. And during this period there arose all the prophecies of this future kingdom. That God one day would restore the kingdom on a great scale. Now, here's a question for Bible interpretation. If you were a reader of the prophecies, not now in the New Testament, but if you and I were readers of the prophecies of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Daniel, the prophecies of Zechariah back here, how would we think when we heard the word, the kingdom of God? Now, let's think about that for a minute before we get screwed up. Because believe me, this is a central point. And if you miss it here, you'll miss the rest of the whole discussion. So that's why I want to take a few minutes and talk about this. What would you have if you just had the Old Testament in your head and somebody came to you and told you the kingdom of God is coming? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. How would you interpret that? Would you interpret that to be an inner spiritual thing? Or would you interpret it to be a physical and political thing? Physical and political. What, did, what was it back here? When the word was used, what was the historic context of word usage? That's how you define words. Was there spirituality to it? You bet there was. Of course there's spirituality with it, because God kicked people out of it when they didn't obey it. So there's spirituality there. But what else is there besides just spirituality? Physical existence. Physical people in physical bodies in a physical land in a physical location doing physical things, building physical temples. So the kingdom of God is not heaven. This is where we've got to watch it here. There's a sloppiness in our, in our thinking. The kingdom of God is not conceived as a synonym for heaven. Now, people get that because they read the New Testament all their life and never understand where it came from. Two-thirds of the Bible is Old Testament. Why don't we spend two-thirds of our time preaching, teaching, and learning it in the Old Testament? And you and I both know we can go out of here and examine a hundred different pulpits and go into any of them on a Sunday morning and where's the sermon being taken from? Old Testament or New Testament? And then we wonder why everybody's screwed up. So, the point we're making here is that kingdom of God, from the Old Testament, you always define words in the Bible in the basis of that first usage, and then you build from there. The word kingdom has to do with something physical, has to do with something very Palestinian, has to do with something centering very much on Jerusalem, and has to do with Jewish kings. That's the kingdom. Now, on this page one, the problem comes in that in the Jewish picture, they had this judgment and resurrection in view. The question was, 
does the kingdom come before the resurrection or does the kingdom come after the resurrection? And it was a question being tossed around in the centuries before Jesus came to minister. Now, let's go back to our vocabulary. We've already learned tonight two words, immortality and mortality. If the kingdom of God comes prior to the resurrection, is it, is it made up of mortal people or immortal people? If it comes before the resurrection, it's talking about people in their natural bodies, and it's talking about a mortal population that dwells in the kingdom of God. On the other hand, if the kingdom of God comes after the resurrection, now what are we talking about? We're talking about people in resurrection bodies for whom there is no repentance, there is no salvation, there are no changes, and then the kingdom of God is immortal. Okay? Now this is going to really get complicated in the New Testament. We're just beginning right here. So, in the picture, what I've tried to show you is in the pre-New Testament version of this conflict, they had a question about this judgment resurrection of the kingdom of God come into an eternity side or on the present side of the judgment resurrection. And you might want to write a word in there. If the triumphant kingdom of God comes prior to the judgment resurrection, it's made up of mortal people. If it comes after the judgment resurrection, it's made up of immortal people. So there's a category problem, and it obviously involves how we conceive this future promised kingdom. Now, as the next paragraph says, when the church became established, now we've got another problem. The controversy of the kingdom continued and became more complex. To the previous Jewish question regarding the nature and sequence of the kingdom was added the Christian question of relationship of the church to the kingdom. Men debated whether the church was a spiritualized version of the long-promised triumphant kingdom or if the church was only a forerunner of the yet-to-come kingdom. So now, in addition, although I didn't actually include this diagram, if in the Old Testament they were thinking about the resurrection here and saying, gee, is the kingdom here or is it here? The question came up in the New Testament, well, where do we put the church? Is the church this? So that the church is the kingdom? Or is the church here, future to this kingdom? Or is there ever going to be a kingdom? So the relationship in, involved, the, the key here tonight, one of the keys is, what is the relationship of the thing called church? to the thing called kingdom. Are they identical? Are they different? If they're different, then what is their relationship to one another? Now, there are three viewpoints that developed. Well, there's only three possible viewpoints that could develop. So, if you'll see, look on page two, you'll see these views. They came to be called premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial because it's the Christian way of saying this Jesus, it's rotating around Christ, in other words. First, the word millennial. Why millennial? Turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is why it's called the millennial kingdom.
Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, notice something about this passage. Lots, we'll, we'll notice more as we go on. First, thousand. Latin word for thousand, mille. Thousand. So now we know where this vocabulary word came from, the millennial kingdom. This is what, that's where the word came from, right here. This thousand year kingdom. Just as an aside, for those of you who have gotten the vocabulary down now, do you notice something very peculiar about this passage? Let's look at a thousand year span. What happens at the beginning of a thousand years, according to this passage? There's a resurrection. He says, they came alive again, those who had been killed. And they participated in the first resurrection. Now, are those mortal or are they immortal people? They're immortal. And they reigned with Christ a thousand years. So, interestingly, this thousand-year period has a reign of mortals, of immortals. We'll see later, it also has immortals. It also has mortals. And then, of course, is the end here. And then eternity, Revelation 21. So, we have a funny thing going on this millennium. This is why it gets so messy. And I wanted you to kind of get sharp with the vocabulary first, get the categories nice and clean before we screw them up here. You'll notice in this passage, you have the coexistence of mortal and immortal people. Strange situation. But you remember back three or four years ago when we started this series, why did I make such a big point in Genesis 6, 1 through 4? Remember we said, what was that passage? It talks about the sons of God cohabited, lived and walked the earth with whom? Men. What kind of men? Mortal or immortal? Mortal people, right? Died. Noah's uncles and all his friends. So they're all natural bodies walking around. But who was walking around with them? Angels. So here you seem to have in the millennial kingdom a condition not unlike the strange condition that preceded the flood, where apparently the human race did have intercourse of some sort with angelic beings. So in this thousand years, we tend to have a mixture going on. There's a lot of hairy stuff happening here. But for tonight, all I want to do is introduce the vocabulary. Millennial kingdom comes from Revelation 20. That's why it got its name. Now if you look on that diagram figure two, you'll see there's a prefix to millennial. Pre, ah, and post. Okay, pre-millennial means before the millennium. And if you look in the diagram, where do you see Christ's return? 
Christ's return is ahead of the triumphant kingdom. And then you have judgment, resurrection, and eternity. That's the pre-millennial view of history. So Christ comes back, the kingdom of God goes on, comes into power, then you have the judgment, then you have eternity. That's the pre-millennial. Christ precedes the millennial kingdom. The amillennial view is that there isn't any millennium. That this thing is, a, is probably identical with the church. It's not something separate. And Christ's judgment comes with his resurrection. It's all one thing. It's not separated up into stages. Treated to be one event, complex, but one basic event. Ah is the word that means negative. It's a Greek negative, not something. So there's no millennium. Then the post-millennial view. The post-millennial view says post, afterwards, after the millennium, Christ comes. So they believe in a triumphant kingdom of God, and after it is there, then Christ comes back and begins eternity. So you'll see now there's parallels and differences, which I'm trying to summarize now at the bottom of page two with that chart. We'll use these three checkpoints over and over. Not the only checkpoints that can exist, but it's, it helps, it's always helped me to just think about these three things. So let's look at those charts on the top of page two and look at the table at the bottom of page two. Now let's take the first checkpoint. Does Christ's return end history or doesn't it? Premillennialist, what would he say? Does it end history? No. What about the amillennialist? Does Christ's return and the amillennial scheme end history? Yes. What about the postmillennialist? Yes. So the premillennialism is the odd person out on that first checkpoint. Christ's return to end history, the premillennials, is against the other two in saying, no, it does not end history. Got it? Got questions? Stop me. Because I don't want anybody to, to be fuzzy here as we go on. But I will encourage you that we'll repeat over and over. So there's a lot of repetition. Okay, the second, um, second checkpoint. Does the kingdom of God actually come to triumph over world culture? What about the premillennialist? Is the kingdom of God in history or is it in eternity in the premillennial view? It's in history because there are mortal people in it. Yeah, there are immortal people too, but there's mortal people in this thing. History hasn't ended, right? Eternity hasn't begun in the premillennial view. Okay? So the kingdom of God precedes eternity, comes into history and acts as the climactic age in the history of man. Human history culminates in the triumphant kingdom of God in history. So the premillennial says, yes, there's a kingdom of God that ends what we know of human history. That's it. It ends with the kingdom of God. What about the amillennialist? Does the kingdom come to triumph over world culture? Well, he has to answer no because he doesn't believe in the millennial kingdom. This is all spiritual. So there is no real kingdom that ever does come. All right, what about the post-millennialist? Does he have a triumphant kingdom of God in history? Yes, he does. So here, it's amillennialism that's the odd man out. 
both post-millennialists and premillennialists agree there's got to be a triumph, a climax to human history in which the kingdom of God appears in a physical, political form. Okay, the third checkpoint. Is evil ever going to be significantly reduced in history before Christ's return? Well, I answered it in reverse. Will evil not be greatly reduced before Christ's return? What about the premillennials? You look up at the top. We live in an evil age. So, is it getting better? No. So, the premillennial says, yeah, evil's going to stay with us until Christ comes back. What about the amillennialists? He agrees with the premillennialists here. Yeah. History's not going to get better before Christ comes back. We have the coexistence of good and evil. But now, the post-millennial says, no, history is going to get better and better until Christ returns. And that's the optimism. That's a, uh, the optimistic view of history. That, that, that evil will be reduced prior to Christ's return. So those are the three views, historically in the church. Okay? Now, t- now we're going to move over on page three to the first one, the premillennial view. And I want to cover a lot of the premillennial view in our time we have left. Finish it up next week and then go on to the ah and post and then we'll go to the resolution. What I'm going to try to do in my methodology of presentation is I'm going to try to be as honest as I can to each of the three positions. You'll see where I stand later as we go on. If you know the doctrinal statement of this chapter, you'll know where I'm going. Okay, the origin and the history of premillennialism. It started before Christ. It was a view that was originated back in the Jewish era of the end of the Old Testament. The quote I have there by R.H. Charles, according to the universal expectation of the past, the resurrection and the final judgment were to form the prelude to an everlasting messianic kingdom. But from this time forth, that is, in this, remember the exile, and what was the next event we learned Thursday night? After the exile came what? The partial restoration to the land? Well, that's what R.H. Charles is talking about. During the period of the restoration, these great events are relegated to its close, and the messianic kingdom is for the first time in literature conceived as a temporary duration. In Second Enoch, the duration of this temporary messianic kingdom was placed at 1,000 years. It declared that the close of the 1,000-year period, history would end and eternity would begin. Now, that second Enoch book is very important. Why do you suppose it's important? Not the scriptures. What it tells you is what people were thinking when the Apostle John wrote Revelation 20. Now, if you had read second Enoch and you were already discussing the kingdom in these terms, how would you have interpreted what John says in Revelation chapter 20? You see? So this, this controls how we interpret these prophecies. Whether the final kingdom was conceived as the last stage of history or as the eternal state, Jewish thought has always insisted it would be material, earthly, and centered on Jerusalem. Please underline that and notice that. Very important. We're going to get to see the rise of anti-Semitism in Western civilization. We're going to watch what happens here. This figures into something that's coming. The Jewish thought 
has always conceived of the kingdom of God as material, earthly, and centered on Jerusalem. It does not conceive of it in a Greek way of thinking, which is immaterial, spiritual, and heavenly. That's a Greek form of thinking. It is not a Jewish form of thinking. And the church knew this, and we'll have numerous quotes about it. Uh, at the bottom of page three, I quote from the Jewish prayer book that's recited in Jewish homes every Passover. And I do this just to show you something. When Gil Singer was here, he did that. Remember the time we had the Passover here? Gil read this. Proclaim by thy loud trumpet, I think he did it, our deliverance and raise up a banner to gather our dispersed. Who's our dispersed? They're the people that didn't come back in the partial restoration, right? The people of the exile. Where are those people? in all the different nations. They are Jews scattered among the, all the nations. So what they're asking for every Passover in a Jewish home, gather us together from the four ends of the earth. Blessed be thou, should be be thou, O Lord, who gatherest the outcasts of thy people, Israel. Not the church. Israel. Even in modern times, the Jewish Passover closes each year with the phrase, coming year may it be in Jerusalem. So, the location of the kingdom is earthly. It is physical. It's not in heaven, and it's not just spiritual. Now, the Christian history. I gave you the passage in Revelation. We went over that tonight. So, you're already aware of the key passage for premillennialism as being Revelation 20. Premillennialists point out that the apostles were premillennialists, that the early church followed apostolic teaching in this regard. Authorities on church history agree that in the first several centuries of Christianity, premillennialism was the majority view. Justin Martyr, the foremost apologist of the second century, was clearly premillennial. Listen to him. But I, and this is sort of interesting, and whoever... ...others declare, and further, a certain man with us named John, one of the apostles of Christ, predicted by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would spend a thousand years in Jerusalem and thereafter the general, or to speak briefly, the eternal resurrection judgment of all men would likewise take place. So here you have it from a guy who knew John personally. Okay. Or thought at least he, he, he must have been close to John through an intermediate. Another vocabulary word that you will see in writings coming up in the next paragraph there on page four, kiliasm. Kilos is the Greek word for thousand, like mille is the Latin word for thousand, so it's a synonym, it means the same thing. Kiliasm. You'll see that sometimes in church creeds. So kiliasm is just a, a, it's a Greek stem, whereas the millennialism is a Latin stem. Premillennialism or Kiliasm is sometimes called gradually declined by the fourth century due to several factors. Politically, the church had become power. Now, I want you to think this through. I want you to think in your head, visualize the flow of history, because I want you to see some connections here. These ideas, folks, are not theory. These ideas have swayed men, women, and nations eschatology is a powerful influence and it's all the more powerful when it's not understood. 
if the politically the church had become powerful. Anybody remember that? What was the Latin, the uh, Roman Caesar who legitimized Christianity? Name begins with C. Constantine. Okay. The church had become powerful. It was declared the state religion of the Roman Empire. Isn't that kind of ironic? Three centuries before, the Romans were killing Christians in the Colosseum. Who conquered Rome? A far-off kingdom was no longer as attractive when a present kingdom seemed possible. Philosophically, Neoplatonism exercised influence through Origen and Augustine. A key Platonic idea, Plato was who? A Greek philosopher. What do we say about Greek ways of thinking? They think in the immaterial. Good, love, become abstractions. There's something that is not physical. The physical deteriorates from this, the abstract ideas of truth. You can have all kinds of triangles, but a triangle is never drawn to be a perfect triangle. But in my head, I can imagine a perfect triangle, the angles of which sum to 180 degrees. You try to draw one on a piece of paper, and you'll never draw a, a perfect triangle. So the Greeks argued that it's the material universe around us that's screwed up. It's never ideal. The ideal exists in this abstract area. So the Neoplatonists came to, to powerfully influence theology in the church. A key Platonic idea that affected the millennial discussion was that all matter is evil and anything good is immaterial. How does that impact the Jewish idea of the kingdom? What was the Jewish idea of the kingdom? It was material. It was in a land. It was in a city. It involved politics. It involved rain, snow. It involved this world. Not an ideal world off somewhere. So now we begin to have a little tension develop inside the church. Because you have a lot of people that have become Christians, some who haven't, just hangers on, but you have people who become Christians who aren't thoroughly converted because they don't know why. Part of the Bible. Old Testament. See? Has an influence, doesn't it? Therefore, reasoned the Neoplatonists, a material kingdom would be evil. And Christ could not rule something evil. His kingdom had to be good. The Bible now began to be interpreted allegorically, particularly when it referred to earthly and material blessings in the messianic kingdom. Finally, the church was becoming more desirous of disassociating itself from Jewish culture. Hebrew Christians, for example, were required to give up their Jewishness in order to belong to the church. Premillennialism was too solidly identified with Israel for the church leaders of the 4th century to leave it unchallenged. So now what's another influence that's happened to it? Neoplatonism and Greek ways of thinking have come into the church. So we're concentrating on an ideal, spiritual thing. And we just don't like those Jews. That's the rise of something. We'll see it later. It's the rise of anti-Semitism inside Christianity. Ideas have consequences. Although mainline Roman Catholic thought continued to oppose premillennial eschatological thinking, Rome has always been anti-premillennial. Roman Catholicism, with all of its might, power, and scholarship, has tried for centuries to destroy premillennialism. 
one can trace a narrow line of premillennial groups from the fourth century into the late Middle Ages. The Waldensians, the Lollards, the Wycliffeites, the Bohemian Protestants represent a few of the circles which thought in premillennial terms. Unfortunately, there were also radical groups. Now watch this one. This is a very important point of history. You won't get this in your school, high school textbook. There were also radical groups who seized upon the millennial vision as a justification for radical social upheavals. Although they are closer to post-millennial thoughts of ushering in the golden age, in the popular mind they became associated with premillennialism. Now let's hold it on that sentence. Why do you suppose I say that? These guys were radical people. They wanted to overthrow some of the kingdoms and fiefdoms of Europe. And they did so because they saw evil in them and they wanted to bring in what? The kingdom. Now go back the page to that diagram back on page two. Which view do you think the radical socialists, the revolutionaries, looked like in terms of those three charts? Postmillennialism. But what does postmillennialism have in common with premillennialism? Look down at your checkpoint. Where does postmillennialism agree with premillennialism? They agree that what? That the kingdom of God will come about inside history. Ah. So, these radicals, going back to that page, these radicals in page five, whoops, page four, these radicals made a bad name for millennialism of any kind, post or pre. What do you suppose the Catholic Church is? Post, pre, or off? Ah. Catholicism is all millennial. Okay? Some things will start to make sense that you've observed here once we get through this. Well, I want to show you some things. Things that you observe right outside in your own families. will start to click when you start putting this together. Roman Catholicism is amillennial, always has been amillennial. Mainline Roman Catholic thought continued to oppose premillennial thinking. You had the radical social upheavals. Thus Thomas Munster, he was one of the guys that you read about in history, and his followers brought premillennialism into great disrepute by their unbiblical exaggerations of the millennium and by their work-centered schemes to bring in the millennium through what? Radical human revolution. From them, now look at this sentence, people. This is why I'm telling you eschatology is not theory only. From them came later visions of a great historical climax through human works such as communism and Nazism, which ironically, as anti-Christian movements, find their foundation for historical progress inside Christianity. Isn't this amazing? Do you know where, what Hitler quoted to justify the Third Reich? What does he mean, the Third Reich? Third Kingdom. Nazis dedicated themselves to a movement. It wasn't just one little soldier here and there. This was a passion in the German soul to bring about a kingdom centering on Germany that would dominate the world. And where did they get the idea? Who was the guy that formulated the German language as we know it today? Who had more to do with it than anybody else? Martin Luther. And Martin Luther did what? He, did, he got printed and distributed 
the Bible in the people's language. And guess where Thomas Munster lived and these guys? Well, they were radical reformers. They lived right around the Central European area. So what they did is they began to read the Bible. They began to see that there was a kingdom in history. And they said, all kingdoms now are demonic and we shall triumph over all of them and bring in the final kingdom. And then you can easily see how that moved into a, a Nazi vision. But it also moved into a Marxist vision. So here you have in European politics, the right and the left, borrowing their ideas of historical progress out of our scriptures. And here they come, Marx borrowed it because he read about Munster. Marx read about those early reformers and he said, those guys had the right idea. Why, what a wonderful thing. We can do away with sin. What we need is a good revolution to do it with. Human works. Energy of the flesh. A vision of a kingdom. So, remember this. These ideas are extremely powerful. And next time somebody laughs at you because you're a Christian, carrying your little Bible, and just say, well, uh, any, all the great thinkers of the world stole from it, so I decided I'd like to go to the original source material instead of getting it second-hand from the atheists and second-hand from Marx and Hitler, I decided I would get it the first-hand by reading Daniel, which is where they stole it from. And by the way, you know there's two lines. Marx got it two ways. He got it through the radical social movement, and he also, he got it through a philosopher of Germany. Who was the philosopher in Germany that developed the theory that history had a spirit to it and it was progressing and you have thesis, antithesis, and you have synthesis and it would be one step forward and go on and on. The famous philosopher's name begins with H, Hegel. And where did Hegel get his ideas of kingdom? Daniel of all places. Holy mackerel, isn't this sweet? We have Daniel writing the prophecy. We have Hegel taking the idea out of Daniel, developing it into a philosophy, and Marx comes along and borrows it from Hegel. And Marx is also reading about these neat guys that had revolutions. So, here's your eschatology, people. This is not just a little thing for prophecy conferences. Okay, now at the bottom of page four, during the later Reformation period, the Protestant leaders continued the Roman Catholic amillennial doctrine. Please notice this. Another important sentence. The Protestant Reformation did not reform eschatology. What area of theology did the Protestant Reformation reform from Rome? Soteriology. Doctrine of salvation. The reformers couldn't do it all in one generation. I mean, give the guys a break. They had all they could do to figure out how you get saved. And they should be commended for that. This, I'm not demeaning. I respect the reformers. All I'm saying is, they didn't finish the job. So, the reformers continue the Catholic amillennial doctrine. Most Protestant denominations are amillennial, just like Rome. There's not much difference between the average Protestant church and the average Catholic church when it comes to eschatology. They're both amillennial. Some factors present in the 4th century were still at work in the 15th century to suppress amillennialism. If you'll bear with me for just two or three more minutes, I know I'm running over. In the Augsburg Confession, 
just look at the look at the language. I want you to see how the Protestant reformers attacked millennials and why they did. They condemned premillennials as Jewish. Here's the quote. They condemn others also who now scatter Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall occupy the kingdom of the world, the wicked being everywhere suppressed. In the second Helvetic Confession, one reads, we condemn the Jewish dreams that before the day of judgment there will be a golden age in the earth. Okay, we'll have to stop there, but you can see anti-Semitism. So, these ideas of eschatology are tied in with vast, powerful movements in history. What we'll do is, in, next week, we're going to go into the features of premillennialism. Uh, if you read through the amillennialism, we're going to finish amillennialism next week and go into post, and then try to go through as to why we believe what we believe here. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have provided us with a view of history that we have an eschatology, and we have it not because we in our arrogance have dictated what the future is going to hold, but rather we have confidence that you have thoroughly thought through the role of history, that you have a history that's consistent, that manifests your character, that you have the purpose of doxological glorification of yourself. And we thank you through the Lord Jesus Christ tonight for that. Amen. have to do, as you, as you raise the question, D, I mean, what do you do with a thousand-year kingdom that's said a thousand years? There it is, right in the text. Well, you've got to allegorize it. You've got to spiritualize it. You've got to move it around in such a way that it fits with the church. And so, behind all this, you have what we call a hermeneutical um, shift from a literal interpretation of Scripture over to a spiritualized interpretation. So that passage I showed you about the thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. It's just symbolism that refers to a, a blessing, a time of blessing. Well, that's the problem. Now, this is why, uh, why we believe here in our premillennial dispensational circles, why we believe that the Protestant Reformation was prematurely ended because you can see a tension here. If the Protestants carried on with an allegorical interpretation of all of Scripture, they'd wind back at Rome. It was, it was the literal interpretation of Calvin and Luther that saved the church in the issues of salvation. They didn't spiritualize that. They had a literal interpretation of the cross of Christ that he paid for sins. That's not just poetic images. That means he paid for our sins. So the Protestant reformers, when it came to salvation issues, 
were very dogmatic about their literal interpretation. But somehow, they just never, never really got with it in eschatology. And, and frankly, it's because they were exhausted. They were tired. They didn't, and these guys risked everything they had just to articulate soteriology. But what happened is that in the next generation, generation after that, the Protestants who followed the Protestants, you know, nobody's as bad as a disciple of the master. The master may not be extreme, but boy, his disciples sure get extreme. What happens is, is that Reformation thought locked up like concrete right after Calvin and Luther. And so you have what we call proudly the Reformed theology. And it has remained virtually unchanged since the 17th century. As though the Holy Spirit, you know, he taught, he taught between 1200 and 1600. Why didn't he stop teaching or something? I mean, you know. So we believe that the, the literal method of interpreting that was introduced into the church in a powerful way by the reformers ought to be continued and ought to then spread to all passages of scripture, not just the soteriological passages. It ought to apply to eschatological passages. The problem is when you do that, you wind up with all kinds of complexities, as we'll see shortly. It's not an easy thing to do. That's why I was hinting at in that Revelation 19:20 passage. Now, I mean, you've got mortals coexisting with immortals. Now, you know, that is really hard to visualize. You're know, driving your car along the road, and all of a sudden, a resurrected saint looking at you in the window. I mean, this is hard to think about. So, so it's not easy to straightforwardly do this. But, but that you're starting to see the issue here. The issue hinges on what do we do with the kingdom. Well, uh, Donna, you, br you brought up a point. What Donna just asked was that you hear it a lot, saying pray, Christians praying for the kingdom to come. Well, literally, the Lord's Prayer says that. Thy kingdom come. Oh, I understand. The See, here's what happens. Is that we hear the words in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come. What else does it say right after that? How does it define the kingdom? Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Have you noticed that, see? He's not talking about praying heaven in. He's talking about praying heaven down to earth. He's talking about the kingdom on earth. Okay, that's the kingdom. But the kingdom for it to come, and this is, we're getting into the Gospels this year. What was the message John the Baptist had to Israel? What was his starting message? Before Jesus ever walked, before... You see Jesus operating in the Gospels. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent because of what? The kingdom of God was at hand. Now the question is, and this is why we're going through this, this thing, how do you interpret John the Baptist's message? What did he mean when he announced prior to Jesus, the kingdom is at hand? Did he mean that there was just a spiritual revival in the hearts of the nation? Or did he mean more than that, that the physical manifestation of the messianic kingdom could have happened. Had what happened? Had Jesus been accepted by his people? Now, in the last day, in Palm Sunday, and after the rejection, Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem, and he made this comment. 
I shall not return Israel until you say, what? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what does he mean when he comes? Does he mean Pentecost when he comes spiritually? Or does he mean something else when he says, I will come back when you welcome me, Israel. When you admit that I am the Messiah, I will return. So, what is that return? It's a return to set up a kingdom. A return to where? To Jerusalem. That's where he spoke it. So he's coming back to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom. The problem is, what sort of kingdom does he set up? Now, when you hear people praying, frankly, the more you get into the scriptures, the more you see it's, it's well intended. It's, I don't mean to demean in any way the motive of Christians are doing this. But they're not thinking through, like, I don't know how many times I've heard people take Chronicles. If thy people take thy name, and they use Second Chronicles as a, as a blessing verse for America. It doesn't apply to America. That's not the context of Chronicles. That's talking about Israel. And it's talking about the kingdom for Israel. Now, in principle, is it true that God blesses the people? Yes. But his people aren't equal to America. His people is the church now. So if you want to spiritually apply it, it still doesn't apply to the nation. It applies to the church. So see, it's just not thinking through carefully. And a lot of it, it can be traced back to the ignorance, the utter, appalling ignorance of the Old Testament in people's thinking. Again, we can't, we have to think, why did Jesus wait so long to come to this earth? All those events that we've been talking about were set up for him. Now, doesn't that sort of imply that we can't understand who he really is and what he is really up to unless we have that preparation? Because the Holy Spirit's not wasting his time. The Holy Spirit must have had a reason. Why does he take centuries to set up history for that moment when the Son of God will walk this earth? It's because he, he, he wants it communicated what the Son of God is all about. And we can't understand what he's all about if we don't have that background. It's a setup in the good sense of the word. Yes. Well, that sentence itself, Bonnie, has to be kind of interpreted carefully because it's not up to autonomous man. God's sovereignty works behind the scenes to cause things to happen, including people choosing. So, so history's not out of control in the sense we're waiting on, God's biting his fingernails, uh, waiting for Israel to do something. God in his mind has it all planned out. But the means through which Christ will return, according to Christ himself, I will not come until you, Israel, say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this may strike you as odd, as why does all history sort of get jammed up over Israel? Well, wait a minute. Back up. Back all the way up to the beginning of Israel's existence. Why did Israel come into existence? Abrahamic covenant. And what was the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant? A land, a seed, and a worldwide blessing. So, the blessings to this earth are channeled through Israel. Where do we get our Bible? Israel. 
Where do we get the Savior? Israel. You see? It's a consistent theme. Now this is why Christendom is, is looked upon askance by Jewish people because they see that in the name of Christ they have been persecuted. But what I hope I've exposed you to tonight and as we go through subsequent Thursday nights you're going to see that the anti-Semitism that has existed inside Christendom has always been associated with amillennialism. The two go together. Because amillennialism and postmillennialism displace Israel and replace it with the church. Well, once you've made that equation in your head that the church has replaced Israel, you don't need Israel anymore, and, and the Jews did crucify Christ, and they were thrown out of their land, you see, it's but a short, short application to then say, like Luther did, at the end of his life, he wrote this most atrociously anti-Semitic tract in which he argued, I quote it in there, you'll see it in, the, in some of his things. He talks about uh, going in and uh, burning up all the Jewish homes in Germany and uh, going in and, and ripping them off. And if you see a Jewish or a Jewish boy in the street, give him a shovel and a pick so they learn how to work. This is Luther, the great reformer, bitter old man toward his end of his life, lashed out like with the Jews. And guess who came along later and quoted Luther? Dear Adolf, in Mein Kampf. And that's the Jewish picture of us. You know, we know you Christians. We know what your reformers told. They said, burn us, kill us. So see why Jews have a problem? And why evangelizing the Jew is rough stuff? And why you have men like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, you have some of the other guys that are Hebrew Christians today, and they're, they're trying to approach Israel realizing that, hey, I'm a Jew, and I don't stop being a Jew because I'm a Christian. I'm a Hebrew Christian. I'm a completed Jew. And if you want to see an argument, I mean, you think we have arguments in Gentile culture? You watch a Jewish atheist go at it with a Hebrew Christian. You want to see a good argument. I've seen them. I've watched them. I sat there and watched Arnold go after a rabbi one day. The rabbi went after him. And that was cute to watch because it reminded me when I saw this. And they were waving hands and yelling and going off into the Hebrew. I thought to myself, you know, this is probably the way Paul was. Because everywhere Paul went in the book of Acts, the ceiling fell in. People didn't ignore Paul. They either threw rocks at him or they blessed him. But they never ignored him. Except in one place, that's kind of like Athens. That was the Greeks. So, so maybe tonight we, we've kind of touched on some of these themes and I think we need to think about them because um, they do really shape how we're going to think about Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ walks onto the pages of Scripture and he says, uh, he makes this statement, they'll see. And this is, what, my kingdom is not of this world. Now what does he mean by that one? If the kingdom is material. When he says the kingdom is not of this world. Well, we have to look at that. That's an argument. See, the amillennialists, you see? See, he's talking about a spiritualized kingdom there. He's not talking about a material thing. And the argument can be made. Wasn't it true that at first the Jews welcomed Jesus because they thought he provided what? Physical, political deliverance. And when he failed to continue that agenda, they turned against him. They didn't want any spiritual kingdom. They wanted the physical one. 
Well, then how does that play a role in premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism? We got to talk about that. But these are all issues that if we don't talk about them now, when we get into the Gospels, we're going to lose it because we'll just talk about Jesus as a wonderful carpenter and had nice ideas about God floated around and then got himself crucified for some reason. So we don't want that. That's a very anemic, stupid view of Jesus. What we want is a potent, powerful, biblical image of who this man was. He's God-man. And to do that, we have to have all that background. So that's what we're trying to struggle with here on Thursday night. I'm going to try to do it fast. Basically, in three to four Thursday nights, we're going to cover an entire semester of eschatology. And go fast, and we're going to necessarily skim, but there's enough verse references in this section, fine print, fine print, um, that if you look up those verse references, by the time you get through here in three weeks, you will have gone through all the major disputing passages. So you should. Yes, well. You mean his clever, his diabolical cleverness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's common, and we must remember that we do have blessings that are given to the church. The church we will see has a magnificent role. But it got the blessings from, through, Israel. You always remember that. And this is why in, the, in Romans, at, in Romans passage, what does Paul say about the branch? Remember? And don't get smart and despise that from which you came. Because God can chop you off. So it's a warning passage there. In Romans 9. Very careful. Yes. I, I agree with uh, Steve in his experience because it was mine. I grew up in a very Jewish community. And uh, frankly, I, I had some close Jewish friends, but a lot of people I argued with all the time were Jewish people. And it was, it's easy to fall into stereotypes you know, around New York. Uh, and so you get the stereotype, and, and it's easy to fall into that. And I didn't, didn't know what the Jews were all about until after I became a Christian. And then when I brought that up to the Jews, then I really had a problem. Um, but in any case, uh, we'll break it up. Our time is up tonight. We always like to be sure the Q&A ends at 9, so it's ending.